0: i'm nathan i'm an alcoholic that's a good place to start i see a lot of friendly faces a lot of people i know here uh which is always good uh make me feel uh at home ah where should i start well aside from my name and my disease which is alcoholism uh And what that means to me is that uh, I have admitted to myself that I am powerless over anything that makes me feel damn good, uh, affects me from the neck up. Um, Anything that feels good like that, I have been prone to uh, due to excess to the point of uh, psychosis. Um, I drank a lot and I did a lot of drugs until uh, I wanted to die. And I just kept going anyways. I've been sober since uh, J- uh, June 6, 1986. So it gives me 35 years of continuous sobriety, days and nights and weekends too. Um, I do have a sponsor. I do have home a couple of home groups. Um, I have Reason and Recovery, which is a group that we started uh, in um march of 2020 and i've been going to oh my god on a regular basis since around since march of 2020 um since i found uh secular meetings online i want to talk about that
1: um i also have a men's group that i go
0: to every morning and i have been going there um uh, since that started in March of 2020 that's called uh rule sixty two men's stag and it's a really good meeting there's some some of my friends are here from that meeting um, has a lot of long term sobriety in it, probably five to seven hundred years on any particular own, particular morning. A bunch of old guys like myself with a lot of time being in the program and doing what we do um I welcome anybody that's new here for uh and congratulations on the newcomers uh i hope you find here what i found here which is uh, a completely different existence and a different
1: way of living that i didn't know i could ever actually ever have um and really if you want what we have here uh, our only rule is do what we do you know follow
0: the rest of us follow 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 the people that have been here for a while and ask them uh, why they got here, how they got here and why they stay here and why they've been here so long. I remember, (laughs) I remember I was in my first few months of sobriety and I saw a guy take a cake for 10 years. And my first thought was, what is wrong with this guy? Why is he still here? You know, um, I could not imagine why anybody would would still be here after 10 years. It didn't make any sense to me when I was new because I came here to, uh, uh, I didn't know. I I mean, I came here because my life was a mess and, uh, and I figured you guys were going to tell me how to make it not a mess anymore. And then I would go on my way and live my life. I didn't, uh, I had no concept of long, what long-term sobriety meant. So if you're new, if you just came in here and you see people with Multiple years of sobriety. Um, there's a reason why we're still here, and hopefully, maybe I can give you my take on why I'm still here. Uh, thanks for asking me to share my recovery story. Um, I don't know. You know, I'm not a. I had I had delusions of grandeur when I when I first came in that I would be a circuit speaker one day and have throngs of people asking me to lead meetings constantly and speak at conventions and um I don't do it very well I uh, if I don't have notes I I get I'm very ADD and I get way out of whack um I also want to thank Mark for asking me I don't I don't think Mark's here tonight but I want to thank Mark for uh for asking me uh in be, in between curse words and and words that I couldn't understand I I got the message that he wanted me to speak here tonight, so I want to thank him for that. Um, and I was taught to share in a general way what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, and I try to even it out. you know i don't I don't like shares that go on too long about what it was like because we all have our you know we all have our origin stories and what brought us here. Um, but I started using very young. I was uh, I was twelve or thirteen years old when I started getting getting loaded, and uh, I'm sure there's a million reasons why I did that. That I could tell you why you know, being from a broken home and being you know all kinds of reasons uh, why I uh, used. But I think generally it's because I was born an, an alcoholic addict, and there was something I I needed some something in my system.
1: Uh, because I, you know, I did not know how to cope with any emotional imbalance at all. My first drug was that I can remember was spinning around
0: in a circle until I fell down. Uh, I would get dizzy. I'd spin around and spin around till I got dizzy and and I fell down. One time I I cracked my head on the on the sidewalk when I was a kid from doing that. And what I learned from that was don't do it on the sidewalk, do it on the grass. So if you fall down and hit your head, you won't hurt yourself. Um, and that, And that's pretty much how I, that's pretty much went on as I went on to do drugs and as I went on to drink, um, I just figured out ways that I wasn't uh, you know I tried to not get hurt, but it never occurred to me to stop. And like I said, I you know I was raised I was raised by a single mom. Uh, I was raised Jewish in a Jewish home, and we did all you know Jewish things that Jewish people do. Um, but even as a child, I knew that the concept of God, the way that it was described to me, just didn't make sense, even at a young age. It made no sense. I would ask questions like, um, "Where's God? You know, what is God?" And the answers that I would get were like, you know, nature and the trees, and it just it didn't make it. It just didn't jive with me. I just could not. I could not understand what what they were talking about. Um, so I never clicked with any you know, with my family's religion or any other religion. It just never made any sense to me. Um, I was also raised, like I said, I was raised by a single mom. So that left me with almost no supervision. And that suited me just fine because I, you know, I'm the kind of rebellious uh, punk kid that will always find trouble. Um, It also especially that time in the 60s, it wasn't yet a lot of divorced people. And so that made me feel a lot different than the kids around me. Um, I felt outside. I felt uh, completely different from, from a lot of other kids. I didn't think the same way. I, I you know, I, what motivated me was different from other kids. Um, so I know that I was not only bodily different, but I was mentally different than, than the average kids that I was hanging out with. And, uh, I'm sure that had, has something to do with me being an alcoholic. Um, and I was unhappy. I was not a very happy kid. You know, I had happy times. I had friends, but, uh, like I said, I always felt like I was an outsider. So I finally, you know, graduated from spinning around in a circle and getting busy to uh, smoking some weed. And um, and I really was primed for that. I I used to, pra- you know, I, I heard about other kids smoking weed and I, uh, I heard about other adults smoking weed. And I practiced, I would practice with rolling papers and pencil shavings, um, rolling joints. Because I, you know, I, I knew that I did not want to be laughed at. And I didn't want to feel like I didn't, I didn't want people to know that I wasn't cool. So I prepared myself for, for getting loaded when I was a kid. And then when I finally did um, start getting loaded as a kid, I learned what, you know, I, I learned that maintaining was a big deal. That, you know, it was okay to get high, but you had to maintain. And if you didn't know how to maintain, then you were not cool. And I had uh, I had to be cool. And uh, I had to fit in. I never felt like I fit in. I had, you know, I tried to fit in. And uh, so I prided myself on being able to get loaded and maintain and not make a fool out of myself and not attract too much attention to myself and especially not have anybody laugh at me. Um, which made me, uh, learn how to rely completely on myself, um, not trust anybody outside of my circle of friends. I learned how to keep secrets from, uh, my family, uh, from other people. Uh, I learned how to get very, very isolated. You know, I learned how to, uh, I had some, you know, I I hung out with a lot of older kids and older young adults who taught me things like uh, never admit to anything unless it's obvious. And even then keep your mouth closed. Uh, Never drop a dime on somebody else, which means you don't
1: snitch on somebody else. Um, And that just isolated me even more. I... uh, I started dealing drugs when I was
0: 13 years old. You know, I went from being a virgin to a drug dealer in my first year, and I sold whatever was available. I started selling weed, then we sold double-cross, mini whites, and Valiums, and whatever we could get a hold of, and whatever was in demand. Uh, I was a part of. Like I said, I had older friends, so I I learned I. I got connections. I had fam- I had some family that was that was uh, able to supply me with drugs, and uh, and I was all of thirteen years old. I continued with that all the way through up into the eighties. I sold. I sold drugs. I did drugs. I didn't finish school. I went to trade school, uh, my entire life was, was about getting loaded, looking cool and, uh, not much else, you know, I learned how to play music. So I had that going for me. Um, but that's all I did. I mean, that really was my life. My entire identity was being the guy that was the hookup was being, uh, the guy that people would call on when they when they wanted a party
1: and that gave me a you know a sense of uh, of being somebody by the time
0: the 1980s came around i was you know i i was selling cocaine which i don't know if you've heard this before but it was pretty popular in the 1980s um and now, then, so then I was, you know, not I was hanging out with a bunch of rich assholes and rock stars, and uh, going to nightclubs and and staying up all night and having you useless conversations,
1: making plans that would never happen. Uh, and this went on for a while, but you know, I ha-
0: you know I have to I I really have to thank cocaine a lot because I don't think if I. I don't think if I started doing cocaine, I would have bottomed as early as I did. Um, but it really took me to a bottom really, really fast. And, um, and I, occasionally I would have ideas that I wanted to change my life and do some less partying, but I really couldn't stop. You know, I couldn't stop, uh, cause it's all I knew from, it's all I knew. It was my, it was my entire identity. Uh, you know, when I got old enough to drink, I you know, and go to clubs and go to bars, it just you know, it just compounded everything. I w- I drank a lot. I uh, I drank a lot, uh, and I didn't you know, I didn't drink. I wasn't like a beer drinker or a cocktail drinker or any of that. I I drank, you know, straight bourbon whiskey or straight tequila or. You know, I, I didn't drink for fun. I drank for the effect. Uh, I also drank to keep my heart from exploding out of my chest and dying from too much cocaine. Uh, and I was constantly trying to find the right combination. But like I said, you know, eventually it really brought me down. I would wake up every day thinking today was going to be different. You know today is the day that I was going to stop. Um, today I'm not going to do I'm not going to drink. today, I'm not going to do any drugs. and uh, and then the day would end with you know, I, I would either be closing a bar or watching another sunrise and really not liking the sound of birds, which is really sad.. Um, and that went on and on and on for at least the last few years of my drinking and using. Um, I Every day it was like, today's gonna be different. And it just went, it was just this constant cycle of, of waking up with unbelievable hangovers, unbelievable, unbelievable hangovers, trying to make it to work, getting to work, forcing myself through the day with a plan of going straight home getting some food watching tv and and not, and and having a normal evening and that just never happened by the time i finished work i would get a second wind and i would end up at the bar and then i would end up you know scoring for somebody and just night after night after night it was it was horrible it really was horrible it's so long you know when i talk about this when i talk about it now it's it's like it's been such a long time for me that i feel i feel like i'm talking about somebody else it's very hard for me to relate to it as this was actually me because i haven't lived that way in so long i i it's hard for me to even relate to the fact that i was just so completely lost so completely addicted to drugs and alcohol and You know, I all of my money. I I had a I had a Volkswagen bus that I owned. I actually owned it, and I had a pink slip for it. And every week I would I would give this guy my pink slip to give me some money so that I could eat because I spent all my money at the club or you know buying drugs and because I couldn't I could uh, you know it I went past the point where anybody would give me a front anymore, and I went past the point where I could where I could hold any drugs long enough to actually make any money off of them. Um, So I was just completely in a downward spiral. Um, I was like 130 pounds. Um, My ribs were, you know, completely, uh, you could see my ribs really easy. I don't look like that anymore, (laughs) which sometimes I wish I looked a little more like that, but, but I don't. So cocaine, you know, it brought me to my knees, and, and, and it literally brought me into a fetal position, crying, lying on the floor of my of my little bungalow apartment that I had in Sherman Oaks, wanting to die, uh, and not being able to end it. You know, it was just this constant cycle. Uh, I lived in one of those bungalows in the valley with tinfoil on all of the windows. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen any of those with uh, pinholes scratched in there so that I could People at night. You know, um, uh, really sad. I, I, you know, I, I had a refrigerator that didn't work for, for uh, the last two years that I lived there because I never used it, and I didn't miss it. Uh, it didn't have any air conditioning. It was, it was. Uh, i like. Uh, I lived like a crazy person. I was really psychotic and I was paranoid. Um, and through all of those of um, all those years, I built up a huge amount of guilt and shame um, for things that I had swore that I would never do but did anyways. Things that, you know, things that I saw other people do that I said I would never do that, that I, that I ended up doing. Um, I was a liar. I was a thief. I was a cheat. Uh, I was hopeless and I was terrified and I really wanted to die. And I was only 25 years old. Um, I was sick and tired of the life that I had. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was was uncomfortable in my own skin. I was desperate and demoralized and I really did want to die, but I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to kill myself. Um,
1: I didn't want to disappoint my grandparents. And uh, I wanted to
0: die, and I guess I also wanted to live, but I couldn't do either one of those successfully. My, um, you know, that self-reliance didn't work. Um, all the ideas that I had for ways of of changing, you know, cutting down, doing less, drinking less—none of that worked. Um, and I hit this bottom. I hit this bottom. Uh, and it was time to make a choice, and I had to admit that I couldn't fix it myself because um, I really tried. I really tried a lot to try to fix it myself, to try to, you know, only do it on the weekends. You know, everything we read in in uh, more about alcoholism, uh, I relate to because I tried so many different things to to not. Use and drink like I did, and i I was just not capable of doing it. And the only thing that the only thing that the only thing that really happened to me was I finally surrendered, and I asked somebody for help. Um, and I think for, I know it's true for me and and i and I think it's true for most people that come into the program that by the time we are really willing to ask somebody for help is when we're done. And I was done. I was so done. Um, I was so done that I was willing to ask somebody for help. I didn't know what kind of help I needed. I just, you know, I, I literally thought I was just insane. And I still wasn't convinced that I was an alcoholic addict. I just knew that I did too much. And I just wanted to do less. And I was hoping that somebody was going to show me how to do that. Um, and so through that surrender and asking somebody else for help, I was guided to a program called Cocaine Anonymous, um, which sounded like something I could do. They, you know, I heard people talk about Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I had this mental concept of Alcoholics Anonymous being on Skid Row with a bunch of bums. Uh, I had no, I, you know, I didn't, I never really knew anybody that was in the program, but when they talked about Cocaine Anonymous, Uh, I thought, okay, well, that's, you know, that's my
1: problem. Uh, You know, let's try something. So I started going to uh,
0: I got an outpatient counselor and I started going to one meeting a week at this place called Studio 12 in in, uh, North
1: Hollywood. And eventually, my trying to manipulate, going you know, ch- trying to trying
0: to hear what you guys had to say to figure out how I could do less. It became really apparent that that wasn't going to work either. That that even going to one meeting a week and having an outpatient counselor was not enough to keep me from using. And I, and I eventually did go into a detox for a week. Um, but one thing that did happen was I. I did kind of fall in love with what I was seeing in the rooms of, of, uh, of the program. And, and, uh, and, and there was a message there that, that got through to me. And when I was in that, when I was in that detox, they had brought in a panel and one of the guys said, you know, I don't know what your concept of God is. I don't know if you have a concept of God or not. It doesn't really matter. He said, what I believe is that what we're doing here in this room is one of the great things uh, in the universe. And at that point in my life where I was at, that made perfect sense to me that here I was in detox with a bunch of people that had the same issues that I had, that were living horrible lives and wanted to change. And they were doing it together. You know, they were doing it in, in, in meetings and I had been to, you know, I'd been to enough meetings by then to kind of have have, have an idea of what, what you guys were doing. And something changed and flipped and I kind of fell in love with this idea of of, uh, of a 12-step program and the people in the rooms. Uh, I fell in love, with, you know, with the common purpose of getting clean and sober and staying that way. um so as soon as I got out of there, I you know I I made a mental you know I made a commitment that as soon as I got out I was going to go to a meeting. Uh, I didn't know I was going to go to a meeting every day. I just knew that I was as soon as I got out I was going to start going to meetings, and uh, and I started to do that and I started going every day and people were talking about getting a sponsor so I got a sponsor. Uh, not only did I go to meet because I used to go to these noon meetings every day. These Cocaine Anonymous meetings were at noon. Uh, at this place called Studio 12, but also at night they had an eight o'clock meeting, and it was an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And so I started going to that, and I started seeing the same people that were at the Cocaine Anonymous meeting at the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And so they all kind of blended, in. I lost that—I lost that uh, preconceived idea that Alcoholics Anonymous was nothing but a bun- bunch of winos, you know. And I started to fit in, and I started to feel like. I was really, uh, I really discovered something that was, that was really important. And so I did, I got a sponsor, uh, I started going to meetings every day. Uh, I lost my job when I had like 45 days of sobriety. So I had no excuse, but to be able to go to meetings, uh, every day. And I started taking on commitments. They started talking about, you know, you had to have a certain amount of time for for this commitment and that commitment, and it kind of inspired me to you know to want to get a little time so that I could take on you know this commitment or that one, and so I started doing that, and uh, and I went to a meeting every day because I used every day, and somebody had said that, and that made sense to me. Um, I also got into a relationship when I had thirty three days of sobriety. I don't recommend that. Uh, that was completely against my sponsor's uh, direction. In fact, uh, when I told him that I had met somebody uh, after a meeting, he told me to uh, never call her again. (laughs) And it ended up that uh, we got married and she had a three and five year old son and daughter and uh, we ended up having two more kids. We were married for 10 years, Uh, but she married somebody that was emotionally 13 years old and uh, I had a lot of growing up to do. I got a sponsor uh, who, you know, I got I got a sponsor who was a movie star because I thought that was cool. Uh, he's now dead because he didn't stay sober, but he did teach me how to uh, check in every day and he taught me how to have fun being sober. Yeah, he, he took, I was with him on my very first New Year's Eve, sober New Year's Eve. I was six months sober. And I went to my first New Year's Eve in 1986 to 1987, because I didn't know how to do anything without being loaded. I didn't, had no concept of how I was ever going to have fun again, and how I was ever going to go to a wedding or a a birthday party or a New Year's celebration or anything without being loaded. I didn't, I didn't know how that was even possible. And why would you even want to do that if you were going to get loaded? It didn't make any sense to me. But he showed me that it was possible. You know, we went to a New Year's Eve party and I saw, hey, I can do this. I can, I can, I can go to celebrations and not have to drink and actually have a, have, have fun and, uh, and enjoy myself and laugh. You know, it was a long
1: time. I hadn't really laughed like that in a long time. Um, and right after that, he went off to make a movie. And
0: that was about the same time that I, I really, my life really started to get real. I was in this relationship since I was 33 days. She had two kids. I was newly sober. Uh, like I said, I was emotionally like 13 years old. That pink cloud that everybody talks about had lifted if I ever had one. And my sobriety was in some serious jeopardy because all I was doing was hanging out at meetings. You know, I had commitments. I was doing things. I was going to the after after meetings. I was going out for coffee. I was doing all of the social things that we do in AA, but I hadn't done any work yet. I hadn't really done any, any self-searching or leveling of any pride or confession of any kind of shortcomings or, you know, character defects or any kind of analysis on how I got there. I just knew that I was there and I was participating. And uh, and it was about that time right after he left that things really started to get very real for me. And my sobriety was in real jeopardy. Um, but there was this guy that was showing up at, at the, uh, every day at, at Studio 12 where I went, um, And I thought he was an old guy. He's way younger than I am now. But, you know, at 26 years old, I thought, you know, this guy was pretty old. Um, And he looked homeless. And he wore this really ridiculous hat. And he wore Birkenstocks. And he just, he definitely was not what I would have considered sponsored material. But he was sharing... um, he was sharing things in meetings that I had was not hearing from anybody else. He'd say like, there's no degrees of powerlessness and it's alcoholism, not alcohol And he'd say, you know, dumb things like a meeting a day helps keep the detox away, you know, really silly kind of things. But he would also say things like, um, you're full of shit and you're gonna die drunk. And, uh, he would say, you, "You not only do you have to learn how to survive alcoholism, but you have to learn how to survive Alcoholics Anonymous.
1: And I thought, I haven't heard that before. Um, and the way that he, you know, he had a certain, he had a certain air about the way that he
0: shared and when he shared it was what I learned, you know, what I've learned since was that he was sharing the truth, as he, without any fear of the, you know, without, without fear of being shunned by the rest of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hadn't learned how to do that yet. Um, Because, you know, like I said, my, you know, my childhood was about fitting in and being accepted and not being laughed at and not being, you know, but here was a guy that was sharing things that people did not like in the rooms, but I, I knew that there was truth in that and what he was saying. Uh, but also he would do this thing where he would share this stuff and it and then he would walk out of the room. That kind of made me angry. And I didn't know why it made me angry, but you know, I've since learned it had, that had a lot to do with my own abandonment issues. Um, but it would make me really angry when he would get, he would share this beautiful stuff and then get up and leave the meeting. And, uh, and so I thought I would teach this guy a lesson because, you know, you're not supposed to walk out of an AA meeting in the middle, you know, after you share. And so I figured I was going to be the one to wise this guy up on how things are done around here in Alcoholics Anonymous. So the next day we, you know, back, back then we had cigarette breaks and, uh, I walked up to him during the cigarette break and I said, Hey, can I talk to you a minute? And that's the only thing that I got out of my mouth before he was screaming in my face saying, does this have something to do with me not behaving the way that you think I should be behaving?
1: And of course it did because, you know, it was, I was going there with with nothing but ego
0: and nothing but, uh, arrogance and he called me out on it right then and there and he screamed in my face that I was that I was a spiteful arrogant phony prick that cared for no one and I would die drunk and he not only did he say it to my face but he said it in a courtyard full of a lot of other people which is really which for me was not a really good thing for me because I had to look good. And um, and so all I could say to him was, keep coming back, dude. Which is, you know, the, which is the standard AA, fuck you, keep coming back. Um, but those words hit me. They hit me really, really hard because nobody had stood up to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Nobody had told me the truth. Nobody had told me that I was a selfish little prick. Nobody told me that I was going to die drunk if I didn't. Change if I didn't change, you know. They just said, "Hey, you know, we love you. Come on in." But you know, that's nice, milk and honey. But some of us need more than milk and honey to survive this 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 disease. And uh, and I knew what he said was right, and I knew what he said was the truth. And I and and I had grown enough to realize that I was willing to accept the truth because I was, like I said, I was just hanging around AA. I was keeping busy, I was having fun, going to coffee, goofing around, but I had made no progress in my recovery at all. So I decided that the next day I I would find this guy again and I would apologize to him for being exactly what he said. And I didn't want to do that, but I knew he was right and I saw him the next day and I went up to him and uh, I walked right up to him and I apologized and I admitted that you know what he said about me was right and my what what he said about my motives were right and. uh, And he said the only reason he came back to the meeting that day was to apologize to me for getting in my face. And that kind of. opened a door. And then he asked me a question he said. he asked me if I had a piece of paper and a pencil. And I said I did. And he also asked me if I had, had I ever done a third step. And and I actually had done a third step. So uh, he said, let's go sit down. And we sat down on the front porch of this, of this place where the meeting was. It was actually at a house. So it had a front porch area. And he asked me to start writing a list of uh, 10 resentments. And we started going over them. And I had no idea I was working, you know, I I was starting to work a fourth step, whether that I would finish that inventory with him, because I had a sponsor, right? Um, And I didn't know that I was going to tell this guy things that I swore I was never going to tell anybody ever, 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 ever. Um, And I did all my steps with him. And I did a thorough house cleaning he showed me how to make amends to people that I didn't feel deserved it. And he showed me how to live. He taught me responsibility. He taught me how to forgive the unforgivable. It's one of the things he said. He said, probably the most important thing I'm going to learn as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous is how to forgive the unforgivable. I never asked that guy to be my sponsor. He just was my sponsor. Um, His name was Richard, and he died on AA's birthday, June 10th, 1987, because he, like I said, people didn't like him very much. And he got got beaten in an AA meeting in West Hollywood. And uh, as a result of that, he
1: died about two weeks later. But I was with him long enough to go through all of my steps
0: and to learn all of the tools that I needed to survive my alcoholism and how to survive Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm sober today because, you know, this guy took time out of his day and his life to show a spiteful, arrogant, selfish prick that cared for nobody and was going to die drunk how to live. And I've been paying him back. Ever since, and uh, and I do that by doing service. I've done service f- for many years, uh, all different levels of what we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous, from cleaning ashtrays to chairing board of directors of central offices and intergroup and world service and all of that kind of stuff. Um, at different points of my sobriety, i you know I, I'm more involved than others. I've been really involved these last two these last two years during the pandemic has really given me an opportunity to be of service in ways that um, that I hadn't been for a long time. Um, because um, I wasn't involved in service. I wasn't sponsoring people for a long time because I was having a lot of difficulty with being an atheist in Alcoholics Anonymous and trying to work the steps the way that they were written in the book and the way that I the way that I had worked them when I came in. Um, so I stopped sponsoring because I, I just couldn't read the big book with a newcomer the way that I used to. And I couldn't take them through the steps the way that they were written anymore. And I couldn't sit through a book study without getting angry whenever chapter four was was read, you know? Um, I came in at 26 years old. Uh, you know, I have literally grew up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous was my home and it was becoming less and less and less my home because what I was hearing in the rooms, I was not relating to anymore. I mean, I related to alcoholics and I related to alcoholic plight and I related to the feelings that we have and what we go through. But when it came to the when it came to the higher power concept and the way that it, the traditions that people have gotten into and in reading prayers and and you know, you know what I'm talking about, all of that stuff. It I started to feel like I just didn't belong here anymore. But I had no alternative. I couldn't leave Alcoholics Anonymous. I know what I am. Um, I don't have any. I don't have any alternative. You know. I know that this is the last house on the block for me. You know. If I don't make it, that's another thing. Richard said. He said, "This is AA, and if you don't make it here, you are forever fucked." And I, you know, and I, I believe that. If I don't make it in AA, I am forever fucked. There's no other place for me but here, because uh <laughs> there just isn't. I just know that. so i was restless and irritable and discontent like a newcomer and my sobriety was in jeopardy again
1: um, and thankfully we had a fucking pandemic because i had been trying
0: to i have we have you know you would think living in southern california that we have all kinds of magical mystical airy fairy kind of meetings and non god meetings and but we had, you know, a group, we have a group called We Agnostics, and uh, and I had been to a few of those, and, you know, they say We Agnostics, but they never are. Um, it's just, if, it never really was what I consider agnosticism or atheism with recovery, and I always wanted to find some place or start a meeting or something where I, where I could Because I knew we were out there. I knew that, you know, I knew that when I was in a book study, I hope somebody's timing me because I have no idea how long I'm going here. Um, When I would go to a book study and I would get angry with chapter four and I would vocalize that there were other people in the room that felt like I did. So I knew that there was that there was people like me in the rooms of alcoholics anonymous that I wasn't the only one that felt this way but I couldn't find a home and it, and it was very very frustrating. We got this pandemic and almost overnight alcoholics anonymous went from being face to face to being on the computer. Like I've never seen anything so fast because you know we know what we need we know that we need to stick together and if we can't be together we are gonna figure out a way to make it work. And um, and so I started going to meetings on, online. And, you know, at first I started going to regular meetings because that's all I knew. And I knew some people that had, you know, from some of the regular meetings that I was going to, started some meetings. And then I started looking for, well, let's see, is there any atheist meetings or any agnostic meetings? So I started going to a few of those. and when i went to those i discovered a google spreadsheet which was pretty small at the time but there was a spreadsheet that had other meetings and i found a bunch of meetings in toronto you know i found beyond belief and i found i found a lot of meetings that were not anywhere near where i live i had no idea at all that we had a we had a fellowship that was so big and so unknown to me. But I started going to these meetings and I asked one person and one person would recommend me to a meeting and then and then I would go to that meeting and they would put put up. And eventually I found uh, Oh my God, which was which was really, you know, which was a good meeting for me. It was it's got the attitude and it's got newcomer it had a, had a lot of things going for it that was very attractive for me. And um, and then I thought, well, shit, everybody else is doing this. This is, this is a good opportunity for me to do what I've been trying to do for a long time face to face. But I couldn't get anybody to come to any meetings. And I wasn't going to pay for a, a meeting room and sit there by myself. So I started a meeting myself, got reason and recovery.
1: Um, and I, let me tell you. My recovery has never been as active as it has
0: been during the pandemic. I started sponsoring guys again because I didn't know we could do that over, you know, I've never tried it over a telephone and I didn't know you could do it over over Zoom. But I've discovered it, it works great that you can do it just as well. And um and I started meeting other people that were atheists and outspoken atheists in Alcoholics Anonymous that had time, that were
1: here for a long time. Um, and it changed a lot of, it, it just
0: reinvigorated that spark in me. And And I heard Richard's voice in my head again, reminding that, Reminding me that it's my job to care more about your life than your friendship. It's one of the things he used to say to me as a sponsor. He said it was his job to care more about my life than my friendship. He didn't care if I liked him. Or, if, you know, he didn't care if we were friends. He cared that I was that I was willing to do the work that we do around here to change the way that we are. He was not an atheist. He was not an agnostic. He was a Jew for Jesus, which... I did not understand that at all, and we did a lot of praying together. And we, you know, and I was willing to do whatever it took when I got here. But I got sober, and I stayed sober a long time, and I was able to regain my uh, my agnosticism, my atheism, and uh, and stay sober. So, how am I
1: doing on time? Can I keep going, or I'm still good? Okay. Um, Learning to survive Alcoholics Anonymous, as well as my alcoholism, um,
0: is something that I try to convey to other people. Because you have to learn how to survive alcoholism and Alcoholics Anonymous, because there are people in secular AA that will get you drunk. And it's no different than Orthodox AA. in secular AA, we remove magical thinking and, and religion. But we're not supposed to remove a program that works. You know, we can rewrite the steps. We can change the order. I have a six-step program in reason to recovery. You know, I took out all the God stuff. Um, we can reorder them. We can do a lot of untraditional things. And I think we should because I think tradition is a is a killer of anything that's good. We get into these We get into these patterns of behavior and we don't think about it. Nobody even questions it. Um, And as long as we have no affiliation with any other group or organization, we can call ourselves Alcoholics Anonymous. But calling ourselves Alcoholics Anonymous means that we have to have a common solution to a common problem. And we follow a common program and we help others to do that. You know, we help others to follow a common solution, unity recovery and service. You know, desperation to live and a willingness to follow others that have found a way out. That's what works for us. You know, it's, for me, it's I call it the power of two. It's one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. And and I hear people all the time say, "The uh, secular AA, take what you want and leave the rest. And I think those people will get you drunk. Um, because if you're together enough in early sobriety that you know what you need to recover, um, if you're in your first 30 days and you have and you're 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 together enough to know what to take and what to leave behind, you probably don't need a program. I know when I got here, I didn't know shit. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what was good for me. I didn't know what you know. I knew what I didn't like. I knew what was killing me, but I didn't know what was going to fix me, and I had no concept of what to take and what to leave behind. Uh, I was completely reliant upon following others that have gone before me and figured out a solution and stayed sober. Because if if you're desperate enough to do what we do and are willing to learn from somebody that lives a better life than you're living right now, that's key to survival. Um, Because I know alcoholism is terminal. It's a terminal fucking disease. In any form, whether it's drugs, you know, whatever running shoes we're in, it's alcoholism. And and I hear people, you know, I, you know, I might be a little bit biased because I came in, you know, through traditional Alcoholics Anonymous and I went through the steps traditionally, even though, you know, in my mind, uh, I'm an atheist. Um, but I was indoctrinated, you know in the traditional Alcoholics Anonymous. And I admit that I have a head full of traditional AA.
1: Um, But I think I hear a lot where people say if it wasn't for
0: secular AA, they couldn't get, they would not have gotten sober. And I understand that. I get that because because our biases and our attitudes are
1: are really strong. but I also think that you're either desperate or you're not. And when
0: anybody offers a solution out of a continued death spiral, we have to be willing to grab it. Because if not, we we will die from this disease.
1: You know, I, I don't know anybody that's modest enough. I mean, if I, and I've been in this situation before where you're bleeding to death. I'm not picky about the
0: doctor. When I'm bleeding to death, it's like, patch me up. I'm not, I don't stop to ask whether, you know, whether he believes in God or not, I don't care. Um, I just know that I am bleeding to death and I need help. And that's how I, that's why I'm still here because I I was willing to do whatever it took when I got here long enough and stayed here long enough to where I could actually think my way uh, and regain my my atheism and stay sober at the same time. Because I was dying, completely dying when I got here, but I became desperate enough to live. And you hear a lot of things in secular AA where people talk about you don't need a sponsor and you don't need to do the steps. and uh, And that may be true for some people, you know, but most of the people that I hear that say that don't have what I have in the fellowship. They don't have the same experiences that I've experienced here. And it's the doing of those things that brings the understanding, you know, understanding what it's like to actually work with somebody else, either as a sponsor or, or, or having a sponsor and uncovering things and breaking your own ego down to a point where you're willing to say things that you swear you were never going to tell anybody else ever. I've done that. I wouldn't sometimes I do it again, but I, you know, most of that, I'm glad I don't ever have to share that stuff again, but I was willing to do it to be free of, of the guilt and the shame and the remorse and all of the stuff that was holding me back and convincing me that I wasn't worth anything. And I wasn't worth sobriety and I wasn't worth anything good in life because I had all of this stuff hanging over my head. Um, I couldn't have done that by myself, by thinking my way out of it. I couldn't think myself into, uh, into recovery. I needed help and I needed help from another human being. Um, for, like I said, for me, it's the power of two. You know, two alcoholics together is way more powerful than myself alone. It's one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic, sharing ex- sobriety experience, uh, working a common program, sharing strengths And lessons that we learn along the way. And, you know, and it's my hope, especially anybody that's new here, you know, that something I say can be enough to help someone say, yes, I'm an alcoholic too. And I don't want to die. And I want to live and I want to stay sober one day at a time. Um, Because that's what we do. That's why, you know, that's why we do this. I, I don't, I didn't understand that when I got here, I thought getting up in front of a lot of people at a meeting and being a speaker was, was like, being a musician and you know playing a song in front of people—it was a performance,
1: and um, it's not for me. You know, I come here because I'm paying that debt back.
0: I'm participating in my own recovery, and I'm hoping that there's a message in what I have to share that convinces somebody else that um, that there is a solution that we have here that you can have a different life, that you can live it sober, you can live it sober and not believe in magic. Um, And if that helps anybody, uh, that's why I do this. So I appreciate being asked to share my story. I hope it was coherent enough that it had some sort of, (laughs) that it made some
1: sense. Um, And that's all I got. So thanks for letting me share.